Welcome to the TriStar Church Podcast. We're so glad that you have tuned in today. My name is Matt Grimes, lead pastor of TriStar Church, and I want to encourage you to like and follow us on social media, as well as subscribe to our podcast. You'll find weekly sermons, midweek deep dives, and more right here every single week. I pray that you're challenged and encouraged as you listen, not just to the words that are spoken, but to the Holy Spirit who is speaking to you through this resource. Now let's dive in. We're going to dive in. Uh, We are going to be in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 uh, through 29 as we wrap up chapter 2 of Romans. If you were not able to be here last week, uh, Brad was here. Brad is one of our elders here at TriStar Church, former uh, uh, pastor who planted Two Rivers Church here um, and also led there for uh, probably about 20-something years. Incredible, incredible man and brought an incredible word last week. And if you were not here and able to hear that, encourage you uh, to hop on. uh, online and take a listen to that. It was really great. We're going to continue in our year-long study through uh, the book of Romans. Um, And uh, what we have seen so far is that we find a Paul in uh, chapter one of Romans who is eager to go to Rome. He's eager to go and to preach the gospel uh, to the churches that are there in uh, Rome because it's exactly what the churches there need to hear. But what we see is that Paul understands that he is more than likely not going to get to go to Rome. So he writes for us this, uh, what was originally a letter to the churches there in Rome uh, to be circulated through the different churches there in that uh, place. Um, and here he is going to be extremely proud of one thing, and that is the gospel. He's going to give his greatest defense and explanation of the gospel. And Paul was ex- extremely proud of the gospel. He was not ashamed of it. You heard him proclaim this in Romans 1, 6. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul took incredible pride in the gospel because it is the gospel that uh, takes men and women who desperately need it in both Paul's day but also in our day today. It is the gospel that we desperately need because it is through the gospel that we find for us the ability of God to confront our sin and not destroy us along with our sin. It is in the gospel that God comes head to head with our sin and defeats it and condemns it and destroys it without destroying you and I, the people he loves. No man can do that. Only God can. And what we see in the gospel is Jesus, who is the very center and heart of the gospel, can change people. He can take in broken, sinful, messed up people and bring glorious works of art that are prized by his Father in them. He's found a way to change like our, our, our most fundamental desires and urges. He's, he's found a way to change the self-centeredness in us and selfishness to a loving concern for others. And it is in the gospel that we see two glorious benefits where we see first, it is through the gospel that God has made his divine power and his divine presence available to all of us. I mean, if you go back to the Old Testament and you're reading through, if you're doing a year-long read through uh, 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 the Bible right now, you're probably finding yourself somewhere along uh, uh, Exodus into Leviticus and you spent 
time studying about the rules and requirements and regulations for how people could encounter the presence of God. And what is beautiful is through the gospel, God has removed every bit of that. And he's given us unhindered access to him 24-7. The second benefit is through the gospel, God has promised us a destiny that is beyond all of our wildest imaginations in heaven. And as glorious as those two things are, the presence and the power of God at work in our lives and ultimately in eternity with him in heaven, even as amazing as those things are, what we see is that there are still people who reject this good news. There are still people who stand in opposition to the gospel and say, I will not acknowledge Jesus as my savior. I will not bow my knee to him. We see people who reject this incredible news and they resist it. And so what Paul has been doing for us is Paul has been describing over the last few weeks the different types of people who resist and refuse the gospel. Let's go back and have a refresher. Uh, in, in Romans chapter 1, he tells us about the first type of person who rejects the gospel, and that is the obviously wicked person, right? The person who just uh, who is just committed to sin. They only care about themselves. They only care about their own desires and following what their heart and their desires and their flesh tell them to do. They have no concern for God. They have no concern for his ways. As he talked about it, um, uh, they, they lived with a sense of God does not exist and he is not concerned about my life. They live a godless life, Paul says. And they embrace their sin. And, and what God does is that God says, you know what? You can have that. And God turns them over to their desires. He turns them over to their lust. He lets them chase that down to the furthest depths that they can go with that, to let them taste and see just how wicked they can be in hopes that they would turn and they would repent, that they would see their desires will not satisfy them, but they would return to the God who loves them and cares for them. The second type of man who rejects God is what we saw uh, towards the end of Rome, uh, uh, Romans 1 into uh, chapter 2, and that is the self-righteous, what we call moralist. The person who looks at their life and says, I I'm pretty clean on the outside, right? I do good. I try to obey the law. I do good things, but inside they are a mess. Inside they're full of resentment, jealousy, hatred, envy. And it's these attitudes that are just as wrong as the actions of those who are outwardly wicked. And they deceive themselves thinking that somehow God is going to be okay with their sin because it's not as bad as the obviously wicked who are out there engaging in sexual immorality and all these bigger sins that we like to label that they don't struggle with. They think that because they've retained a respectable facade that God is going to just kind of overlook their sins and they won't be judged in the same way that the outwardly wicked person will be. But what Paul tells us is that they're going to face the same judgment. They'll face the same judgment from the same God as the obviously wicked person who has no care for God, who has no concern for God. They will come face to face with that same judgment. And so this week we come to the last two types of people who reject the gospel and reject the truth about God. And that uh, third type is this, is the non-believer who's never heard of the gospel. You hear people talk about this all the time. The person who lives as, uh, who lives where the Bible is not known. 
where the truth about Jesus has not been taught. Maybe they've grown up in a place where another religion is dominant and they've not been taught the truth about Jesus, the hope that is in him. And Paul is going to teach us about what is going to happen to them when they stand before God. Will they get off scot-free or will they be held to the same standard? The fourth type of person who rejects the gospel is the religious person. You need a greater example uh, of this is look at the Pharisees of Jesus's time, those who embraced uh, rules, those who embraced rituals, traditions, actions that, they th- that, that are noble, that they think are going to somehow please God and that are going to get them off the hook. And so let's see what Paul has to say about these last two types of people who reject the gospel, Romans 2, verses 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish. He's going to talk about this first group here in these first few verses here. Those who have not heard of the gospel, who have not heard the truth about Jesus. What is going to happen to them? For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearer of the law who are righteous before God. It's not because you've heard the law that you've been made righteous before God, Paul says. But the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciousness bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It is important for us to understand, Paul says here, and that is this, that people will be condemned at judgment not because they have the law or do not have the law, but because they have sinned. What is going to put you and I in a place of judgment before God is not whether we or not we understood what God's law requires, but whether or not we have sinned. It is our sin that puts us in judgment before God. And Paul is going to tell us how Gentiles who have not heard of the gospel are going to be able to be condemned without the law. And he tells us because they have a conscience. Their consciousness testifies to right and wrong. All of us have this internal thing in us that we call a consciousness that is leading us. And even those who don't know Jesus, their conscience testifies to what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And what Paul says is it's enough to point you to Jesus It's not enough to save you, but it's enough to point you to that there is a higher law, there's a higher uh, authority, and to push us to a place to begin to seek that. People who have never heard God's word directly still have this moral compass that they're accountable to, Paul says. And according here to Paul, there is a day of judgment that is coming. And on this day, nobody gets to escape God's judgment by claiming they were ignorance to his written revelation. You and I don't get to say, well, I didn't know that, God. (laughs) I get off scot-free, right? It's kind of like when you take your driver's license and and they they issue, or you take your driver's license test, they issue a driver's license, and they tell you, hey, you're bound by the law whether or not you know it or not, right? Right? The, the rules of the road, you have, you're going to be held accountable to those whether you knew it or not. And the same with God. 
We don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card because we didn't know it. Parents, this is why it is so important for us to disciple our kids. Because they will be held to the same standard that you and I are held to. It's critical that we start at an early age teaching the truth about who Jesus is and planting the gospel on their hearts from an early age so that they understand because we don't get a, a, a free pass because we're Christians from God's judgment. God will judge all people on how they either used or abused his word, whether it was written on their heart or written in the pages of scripture, we will be held accountable. And notice what Paul says here. This is a part of my gospel. Paul does not shrink back from declaring our absolute accountability to God. He does not try to get get away from talking about that. That's something we like to backtrack on. Hey, let's not talk about judgment. Let's not talk about God's wrath. Paul says, I'm not shrinking back from that because we've got to understand that. There is a day of judgment that is coming, Paul says, and on that day, you and I will be held accountable. So knowing that every person will be held accountable by God ought to motivate you and me to love for our neighbors and our co-workers and our family members who don't know Jesus. It ought to move us with compassion for them, to share the truth of the gospel, to live it out in front of them so that they can see the truth, so that they can know the hope that is in Jesus. Because ignorance of the gospel will not be an escape from judgment. They will be held accountable. So will you and I use our life and our resources and our time to devote to carrying the gospel to them? Or will we waste it on other stuff that doesn't really matter? that in the end it's going to get piled into a giant heap and burned. Paul's going to go on, and Paul is going to address the fourth type of uh, person who rejects the gospel, and that is what he calls the religious person. Uh, In this day, this was the uh, Jewish believer. Um, And you have to understand that there's this uh, ongoing feud that is happening between Jewish believers and what we call Gentile believers. And it is happening extremely, uh, 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 there's a huge conflict happening between these two groups in the Roman churches at the time. Uh, These self-righteous Jews were looking down on the Gentile believers and, and they, they had a sense of superiority about themselves and they thought that they were better than the Gentile believers. Why did they think this? Because they were Jews. They had the law. They were God's chosen people. 
God favored them, right? They were a nation to him. They had all the truth about who God was. And so because they had it and it came through their lineage as Jews, they thought we are better than Gentile believers, who, people who, were not grow, who didn't grow up in our faith system. And so these Jewish believers thought that they were better and they had special privileges as Jewish people. Let's see what Paul has to say to them here in verses 17 through 24 for this kind of thinking. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are, are instructed from the law. He says, listen, if you're a Jewish believer and your confidence comes from the law and that's what you boast in, right? And you think that you can instruct everybody else because you have the law. And if you are sure you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, you think you have all the answers for everybody, Jewish believers, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You think you're better than everybody else? You think you are superior to everyone else? You think you have knowledge and truth because you're a Jew? Listen up. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you also steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you actually go out and commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? We're going to talk about this in a few minutes. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. You are so confident in the law. You think it gives you special privileges. You think it gives you special rights. And yet you can't even keep the law that you're so proud of. And this dishonors God. Your confidence in something that you can't even do is dishonoring God. And even more so, the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Verse 17 highlights a very important question for you and I today, and that is this. Where does your confidence for your salvation come from? Where is your confidence anchored for your salvation? Is it like the Jewish believers? Is it anchored in the good things that you do? Maybe your upbringing or your parents' faith? You have to understand a little bit about the context of what is, is happening and going on in Rome. Uh, around 41 AD, Emperor Claudius um, expelled all of the Jews out of Rome. He said, you got to go, and he kicks them out. He can't stand them. He forces them out, but he does not exile Gentile Christians from the Roman Empire, just Jews. So all the Jewish believers are sent out along with the Jews, and the only people who remain in Rome that were believers were Gentile believers who had not grown up in Jewish traditions, Jewish customs, and in the Jewish faith. <clears throat> and so for about 14 years, the Jews are banished. And now they are allowed to return to Rome. And as they return to Rome, they come back to the churches they once uh, were a part of, and they realize things have changed. 
For 14 years, Gentiles have been leading these churches and they have not embraced the customs of the Jewish faith. They have not embraced the laws of the Jewish faith. And so the, uh, all the Jewish believers come in and say, you guys have missed it. You don't have it. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the law. You've got to do all these other things. Yes, it's Jesus plus all this other stuff. And so this fight is breaking out between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers. And this is what Paul is speaking to here. He says, you Jewish believers are proud and confident in the fact that you've been given the law. They felt like their possession of the Jewish law made them special and that they were God's chosen people. But they also believed it ensured their salvation. And they thought because they had God's law, it made them a special breed of people who could call out on a much higher level sin and other people that they could instruct other people on what was right and what was wrong, and they had this air of superiority about them. They wanted the Gentiles to embrace the same Jewish customs that they had known their whole life, to obey the same Jewish laws that they had grown up with. And Paul says, listen, what foolishness. You have the law. You can't even keep it. He says, you, you, you say that you abhor idols, and you don't worship false idols, and yet you Jewish believers are out there profiting off the sale of false idols to pagan worshipers as they go into pagan temples to worship a false, uh, a false god. You think that that's okay? You come out here and you lecture Gentile believers on not committing adultery, and you Jewish believers are actually having adulterous affairs on your spouse with your slaves. And that's okay. What Paul is trying to say to these Jewish believers is this. You can't keep the law. That's why Jesus had to come. The law can't save you. All I can do is point out how you fail to keep it. But Jesus, he lived the law perfectly. And he laid his life down as a sacrifice for your sins and my sins to pay the price for every person's sins who would ever walk the earth. And through faith in him, we can walk in freedom. And Paul is saying, these Gentile believers get it. And that's what they're doing. And you Jewish leaders are coming back in and going, but the law, but these rules, but do this and do that. Get circumcised. All these religious activities are going to save you. No. All that's doing is dishonoring the name of Jesus and of God in Gentile nations. And keeping the very people that God wants to rescue and save from coming to faith in him. It's causing Gentiles to speak evil and to rail against God. The very people God is after. That he wants to save. That he wants to bring hope and meaning to their life. 
if Paul's attack on the Jewish leaders here is not bad enough, he's going to He's going to go, like, if you ever grew up, I don't know, I grew up in South Alabama, and we watched wrestling. That was a family sport that we did together, right? Um, and you knew, like, when someone was about to just, like, you know, finish the match, right? Does anybody know what they did, right? As the person's writhing in pain on the, uh, on the floor of, uh, of the ring, right? The, the victor will begin to climb up the ropes on the side, and he'll stand on top of the pole, right? And he'll just come off the top rope with an elbow right to the chest, and, like, the match is done. Paul is about to do that right here. He's about to come off the top rope on these Jewish leaders like, you know, back. He's got his mask on. He's got a singlet on. He's like death blow to him right here in this moment, right? He's going to attack circumcision, which is like the be all of religious traditions in the Jewish faith. Like you don't get more Jewish than circumcision. Paul says in Romans 2 verse 25 through 27, for circumcision Indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You might as well not be circumcised. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Woo, that's a lot right there. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. How many times can we say circumcision and uncircumcision in, you know, two or three sentences, right? Basically, he's saying this. You Jews, you pride yourself on the right of circumcision, right? It was a symbol that they were God's people. But Paul says, you, you, you pride yourself in this symbol, this outward expression of your faith in God, and yet you don't even do what God asked you to do. You just want a religious activity to say, I'm a Jew, but then you don't want to live like a Jew any other time. Jews believed that circumcision guaranteed their salvation. In fact, some uh, Jewish scholars believed that Abraham would si will sit outside the gates of hell and he will check every single man walking into hell to make sure they're not circumcised. Like, it's crazy, right? This is a big deal for Jews. But Paul says it's meaningless. What good is circumcision to you if you don't do what God's asked you to do? Sure, you've got an outside facade that says you're a Jew, but inside. Does the inside match? It's kind of like in your pantry, there are these things, um, at least in ours, uh, called canned goods. They're stacked in the bottom of our pantry, and they're all probably about five or six years old because we never, ever uh, use cans unless we're making chili, right? And you can pull out a can of black beans, and I can take the label off that can of black beans, and I can put a label for a can of peaches on it. Does it make it a can of peaches? Hold up. All right. Now, Brad helped us out here uh, last week. Uh, when I ask a question, I need a response. If I take a can of black beans and I put a label for peaches on the outside, does it make it a can of peaches? No. Why? Because they're black beans. Inside the can are black beans. I don't care what label you put on the outside. What's on the inside is what defines that's what these Jewish leaders were doing. Yeah, I've been circumcised, but yes, your life looks nothing like God says it should look like. 
That doesn't matter. It can't save you. And thousands of years later, it's not circumcision for us, but all you need to do is substitute baptism or church membership our attendance on Sunday morning, our tithing. We think that we've been baptized and so all of a sudden my salvation is guaranteed, I'm good, and it, nothing else matters. I can live however I want to for the rest of my life. Oh, I go to church on Sunday morning, look at me. I show up every single Sunday. But do you know God? Do you know Jesus? Is there an intimacy there? So many of us rest on the fact that we've been baptized, attend church, or are a member of a church as a sign that we belong to God. And what Paul would say to that is, it's useless. It's worthless. If nothing's happened in here, if Jesus and the gospel hasn't done a transformation inside here. All those external signs are meaningless. The gospel is about what Jesus has done in us, not what we do or don't do. Let me say that again. The gospel is about what Jesus has done in us, not what we do or don't do. And we bastardize the gospel when we make it about rituals, just like the Jews, so that we can easily justify living however we want to. When we say that faith is just about rules and regulations and rituals, we dumb down the gospel. The gospel is about transformation. Life change, hope, life, peace. Paul's final conclusion about the religious man is found here in verses 28 through 29. He says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The last phrase there is a play on words. The word praise is taken from the word Judah, from which we get the word Jew. And what Paul says is that the Jew is not praised by man, but by God. And so for us today, it is right that we swap the word Jew for Christian because Paul is speaking primarily to the Jewish Christians who found themselves in Rome. And so we can easily swap out the word Christian here. And what he says is this, is what makes a Jew or a Christian? What constitutes that you are a Jew or you are a Christian? Is it religion? Is it observing the Old Testament law? Is it keeping for Jews a kosher kitchen? Is it being circumcised? 
What is your basis for saying you are a Jew or you are a Christian? Here in the last two verses, Paul is absolutely clear about what makes someone a Christian. Paul teaches us that nothing we can do outwardly makes you a Christian. We become a Christian when our heart is changed by Jesus Christ. What makes you a Christian is not the culture you came from. It's not the rituals through which you have gone through. It's not the circumstances of your life, your background, your ancestry. It's not the family that you grew up in. What makes you a Christian is that you have come to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and you have asked him to forgive you of your sins. That's what makes you a Christian. Not how many times you show up to church on a Sunday morning. Not how much money you give to your church. Not whether or not you've been baptized or circumcised. Paul's conclusion is this. Any man without Christ is hopelessly lost. And their only hope is Jesus. There's nothing they can do. There's no action that they can take. There's no ritual they can keep. Their only hope is Jesus. That is what makes us a Christian. So this morning, do you have faith in Jesus? Is that where your security for your salvation is anchored? Or like these Jewish believers, have we deluded ourselves? Have we deluded the gospel? by anchoring our hopes to our actions and our efforts and the works that can come from our hands. Paul's going to give us three important warnings that we must understand about salvation. And the first one is this. Salvation comes from Jesus' work on the cross, not our own works. We don't always say it. None of us would come out and say, yeah, I'm living by my works. I'm trusting in my works to save me. We won't say that, but that's how we live. We live as though our actions somehow gain us favor and pleasure with God, that somehow our actions can move the hand of God in in his favor towards us, in his love, that somehow he's going to love us more if we will just do these things. If I don't listen to this type of music, if I don't watch this type of music, if I don't hang out with this type of people, then God will be pleased with me. That is works-based salvation. There is nothing that you and I can do by ourselves to win us favor with God. What else, like, what can you and I do to add to the redemptive work that Jesus has already done on the cross? There's nothing Jesus said, it is finished. 
And salvation can only come through his finished work on the cross, not an ounce of our efforts. Paul says, if there's even an ounce of your efforts, it's all on you. It's Jesus. All of it is either Jesus or you got to figure it out. And by the way, you can't figure it out. The only person who did was Jesus. Our righteousness, our right standing with God has been secured by the work of Jesus on the cross for us. Think about this. Just take a moment. What is the most glorious thing you think you could do for God? Just take a minute and think. Like, like th- th- man, this would be incredible. If I did this, man, God would just be so happy, right? Think back to maybe when you were a kid and how could I impress my parents? What could I do to make them happy? Think, think that way for a moment. What could you do? Like get something in your mind. Now here's what Isaiah has to say in chapter 64. That even our most righteous acts are like filthy garments before God. Even the most righteous thing you could do, even the most glorious, wonderful thing you think you could do for God, Isaiah says is offensive to God. In fact, the Hebrew word that he used here for dirty uh, uh, garments, filthy garments here, is not like a dirty uh, uh, a wash towel that you've left in the sink that's kind of funky smelling. It's kind of, ooh, that, that's bad, right? It's not like an old pair of gym socks or funky clothes that you have lying around. When Isaiah speaks, the literal Hebrew translation is actually filthy menstrual garments, Decipher amongst yourself what that means. Even our most glorious acts in our eyes, Isaiah says, are like filthy minstrel garments to God. We can't. There's nothing we can do. You know what pleases God? It's not us trying to do things for him. But when we rest in what Jesus has done for us and we let his Holy Spirit produce God-likeness in us, that's what's glorifying to him. Not us trying to do it on our own. That's why we have to lean not on our own works, but on what Jesus has done for us. The second warning Paul gives us here is that religious rituals cannot save us. Circumcision could not save the Jewish believers at this time. And religious activity will not save you and I. Whether it's church attendance, giving, baptism, being a member of church, praying a prayer, studying theology, fill in whatever religious activity you want to, it will not save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ will save you. There are zero rituals that you and I can do that will save us. The only thing that saves us is confessing that we are a sinner, acknowledging that Jesus is Lord and surrendering our life to him, believing that he died on the cross for us. That is what will bring about life and transformation in us. But unfortunately, so many people in the church 
want to put their faith and their trust in a religious act or a ritual. And do you know why we're, we're drawn to think that way? Because then we can just go on and live however we want to the rest of the week. Because I've been baptized. I've checked this box. I've done this thing. And so I get a, I get, a get out of jail free card on everything else that Jesus says my life should be. That is an easy, costless faith. And it is not the faith that Jesus has called us to. It is not the life that Jesus demands of us. And that kind of faith, church, listen up, will only make the world around us hate God more. You know why? Because just like with the Jewish believers in Rome, the world will look at you and I and see the hypocrisy in us. And they'll go, I don't want anything to do with that. But man, when the world sees a believer who's leaning on Jesus, acknowledging that, man, I'm a sinner and I'm messed up. I don't get it right. But there's a God who loves me and sacrificed his life for me. And through what he did on the cross for me, I've been forgiven and I found life and I have the presence and the power of God at work in my life. Am I perfect? No. Man, people are drawn to that. They want more of that. They want their lives to look like that. The third warning that Paul gives us is that salvation brings about the holiness of Jesus at work within us. Once we confess that Jesus is Lord and he makes us right with God, that's when the work of what we call holiness in us begins. And this is where um, uh, we get it wrong. Because so many people, when we start talking about our holiness in our life, immediately this is where our minds go to. Give me the rules of things I, I, I'm supposed to do and the things I'm not supposed to do, right? Give me a checklist. Let me check off all the things that I should do, all the things that I shouldn't do. And that's not what holiness is about. Holiness is simply having the same mind as God. Becoming more like him in how we think, how we respond, how we live in the midst of a fallen and broken world. And listen, you can't have holiness if the gospel and Jesus aren't constantly working in your life. Because holiness is not about what we do and we don't do. I don't do these things, so I'm a good Christian, and God is more pleased with me. No, that's just slipping right back into faith-based or, or works-based faith. Holiness comes when we surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit, and we allow Him to produce more of Jesus in us because we have surrendered ourselves to Him. It's not about what we're doing. It's about what the Holy Spirit is doing in us because we are surrendered. 
and we are submitted, and we are aware, and we are intimate with him. So where does your hope for salvation come? Does it come from your own works, your own efforts, your knowledge of Scripture, your religious activity, your actions? That's where you find yourself. Let me encourage you. Paul is speaking to you this morning. And his message to you would be the same that it was to these Jewish believers in Rome. It doesn't work. Only Jesus does. Would you take him up on his offer? Would you stop striving and simply rest in Jesus and what he's done for you? And would you ask the Holy Spirit to work in here? transform, to renew, to bring transformation so that you begin to look more and more like Jesus because of what the Holy Spirit is doing, not because of what you're doing. Jesus, we come to you this morning grateful for the gospel, grateful for the good news as glorious as heaven is going to be one day. As amazing as it is to walk in your presence and in your power. It's even more glorious to me. It's that I don't have to do it. I don't have to have the right actions. I don't have to figure it all out. I just got to trust in Jesus. Just got to lean into him. Just got to lean into what he's done on the cross for me. To put my confidence in that, to anchor my hope to that. And then just walk with the Spirit. Just stay in step with him. Not as he leads me to rules and rituals and activities that I have to do, but as he leads me to look more like you, Father. To have your mind, to have your heart, to speak and to live the way you would in the place that you've put me. God, help each and every one of us Live the gospel this week in the places we live, work, and play. Help us walk in step with the Spirit. If it's your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand right where you are? Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you live in the greater Knoxville area, we would love for you to join us for a worship gathering. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. For directions and more information, please visit www.tristarnox.org. Lastly, resources like this one are made possible by the financial support and generosity of people just like you. If you would like more information on supporting TriStar Church, please visit our website, or you can text the word GIVE to 865-240-0353 and follow the prompts. 
Your generosity and support will empower us to continue to partner with believers, equipping them to make disciples by living out the gospel in the places they live, work, and play. Grace and peace.